Well, good to see you this morning. Summer's here, isn't it? It may not be here on the calendar, but I tell you what, the kids kids are all here for summer, aren't they? Ready to go? And, you know, we just never seem to get in between weather here, do we? It's either cool and rainy or it's full-blown summer heat. I don't know, I talked to a couple people and I'm a runner as well, and it's so hard to run in this humidity, isn't it, this heat? It brought back, mem- back memories this last week, uh, two memories that you may think are actually, as I describe them to you, you may think are really awful memories. But to me, there's a sweetness about these memories. One was uh, I, I worked my way through college and my master's degree is working at UPS. And, uh, you know, it's funny how you can tell things about a company just by the way it's formed. You can tell that, that UPS did not start in the South. Just think about it. Dark brown trucks. When I worked for them, they didn't allow shorts yet, so it was dark brown, really thick, heavy polyester pants. And really thick, heavy polyester, dark brown shirts. So I was in Tulsa at the time working for them, and the day that I remember most was 105 degrees and 70% humidity in dark brown polyester You walk into the back of the vans, and literally the back of the vans, because of the dark brown, were approaching 140 degrees. I used to, in the summer all the time, I'd go with two gallons of ice water to work. And that day, I ran out of ice water by 2 o'clock in the afternoon, because going into the back of the van, it would just stream off you. And by 2 o'clock in the afternoon, by about 3 o'clock in the afternoon after I ran out of water, I was starting to not sweat anymore when I went back in the van, which means you're in trouble in potential heat stroke. So I planned my entire day, the rest of the day, around stopping at places where I knew I could get a good cold drink. Because even if I got a, like went to a quick trip, or well, we don't have quick trips here, 7-Eleven. We have 7-Elevens, yeah. Uh, and got a nice cold drink. It was warm within about 20 minutes in the car, in the, in the van. It was just so hot. And, and I, I remember another time as well, um, I grew up working on farms, and I, I just remember this distinct day where we were just we just had to bail because rain was coming. We had to bail. We had to get it up, and it was 95 degrees, 90 percent humidity. And, and the thing I loved most about that day was getting back to the barn because you'd get to go over to the tap that came directly out of the well, and you get to take a great big drink out of the hose, and then you'd hose yourself down with this 50 degree water. It was just so refreshing. And while those may seem like awful memories in some ways, they're really sweet memories to me just because of just because of being able to go home at night and and sit down and drink a cold lemonade and eat a whole bunch of watermelon. And and you just feel good about a day's work when you when you've been through something like that. And, And the memory of how good and how refreshing, how satisfying that water felt. What are your memories of summer? What are the good memories you have? Maybe you've got some similar. Maybe maybe you remember great baseball games where you endured the heat and you won and you had a great game. Or maybe you, maybe you remember a, a, a hike on a vacation that was just spectacular, but you just were f- so thirsty and it was so hard. Or maybe you just remember drinking from a hose and running through the sprinkler in the summer. You know, summer is a happy, enjoyable time. It's a time where we take a break and... There's fond memories, and there's one thing I know about myself. I know I'm a very intense person. 
So we've intentionally this summer decided uh, to take a little bit of a break from the intensity. We've, we've done some really intense, heavy series this year on real hardcore issues, and we've talked real honestly about some tough stuff in life. And, and this summer we're going to take a break from that and do something that I think will be just kind of satisfying, kind of really refreshing. You know, when you go on a vacation and you sit by a mountain stream and a mountain lake and you're looking at the lake, you know how you, know how you drink in the refreshment of that? And it's just something... It does something to you. I want our summer to be like that. Because the reality is I think sometimes we live life in our faith life hot and dry. And, and the difference between living our faith life hot and dry and, and working a hot day in, in Tulsa is you get to the point where you, you realize you're not sweating and you're so hot and you know you have to drink. And I mean, it's just obvious. But sometimes when we live our faith hot and dry, we don't realize that we're we're hot and dry and we just think we have to push harder because if we're this thirsty for something and something must be missing so we must need to push harder and and we often end up like isaiah 29 and it says uh skipping down through the end of the verse seven there it says it will be as as with a dream with a vision in the night as when a hungry man dreams that he is eating but he awakens and his hunger remains and when a thirsty man dreams that he's drinking but he awakens and is faint and his thirst and unquenched is unquenched and And we can think that we're pushing really hard and we need to just keep serving and keep doing stuff to find that refreshing. But but really this this whole dream, this whole thing that Isaiah says is what we were talking about in the last series, rescued from religion. When we just keep working, sometimes we live hot and dry and we never we never get refreshed. And Peter talks to people pushing hard and in religion and Acts 3 when he says this, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come. God wants us to have refreshing memories. He wants us to have times in our life when we slow down and we just drink in the grandeur and the beauty of how big he is and how awesome he is. There's a story of a sub returning to port in Newport News uh, in World War II uh, towards the end of the war. It, it was coming into the, uh, the harbor. And as the story goes, it, it sunk. And they sent out divers to it, and the di- divers were, were swimming around it trying to figure out why it sunk and trying to figure out the best way to, to, get, the, to get the sailors out of it and, and rescue them. And, and one of the divers swimming by the hull hears this, this tapping, this scared sailor on the inside tapping this message in Morris code called is there hope that's what he was asking just asking is there hope and it's really one of the fundamental questions we ask in life we ask it all the time it's asked by thousands of people different every day sometimes we ask it when we're at the doctor's office and we're waiting on tests and we're asking is there any hope Sometimes we, we stand at the, the bedside of somebody suffering greatly in a hospital and, and we hear them ask the question, is there hope? Or, or sometimes we, we, we've experienced it ourselves in, in marriage or in family when, when maybe you've been in marriage counseling for a long time or maybe you've had a really big fight and it just doesn't seem to be getting better. It's, it seems to be like the fight's about the same old issues all the time and they just keep coming up and, and you ask the question, is there hope? And, and, and honestly, I ask it every week when I listen to the news. You know, when I listen to the business news, especially the latest economic reports and, and the trade deficit with China and how hard it's going to be to fix that trade deficit, we start asking ourselves, is there any hope? You know, our, our government and our political leaders ask it all the time about Iraq and Afghanistan. Is there any hope? 
And we ask it even now about part of politics in other ways. When we hear the partisan ramblings going on and we see really big problems and very few solutions that are serious. And, and we ask, is there any hope? Romans 15 says this. It says, May God, the source of hope, fill you with joy and peace through your faith in Him. And then you will overflow. Your, in other words, your thirst will be abundantly quenched with hope. And then it goes on to say this. It says, In your name I will hope, for your name is good. Specifically, God says, we find hope. We find our thirst being quenched in His name. Well, what does that mean? How do you, how do you put hope in a name? What's the big deal about the name of God? Well, first of all, names in the Bible are, are very different than we treat them today. You know, think back to, if you're, if you're a parent, think back to when you, when you named your kids. I, I think back to that and I go, okay, so we ruled out these names because we had people in our past who we didn't like and they had those names. So we rule out these names. And then we have people over here that we really like and so they become part of the list of possible names. And, and then with, I can't remember, our second or third child, we ran across this really, I thought it was a really funny book. It was a lot of fun to read. It was this book that was done, you know, you get, these, you get these name books where they do the etymology of the word and they tell you the meaning of it and where it originated and all this. Well, this book was actually different. It was just a study. They studied like, they interviewed like a thousand people and of all the different names and they said, what's the most common reaction to this name? So for instance, you know, you read the name Joe and it says, well, Joe is, Joe is perceived by most people as a, a down-to-earth, hard-working, athletic type person. And then you look, you know, a little bit back, you flip a few pages back and you look at the name Chester. And Chester is perceived as, as this highly cultured Englishman who's kind of snooty and wealthy. You know, and you get all these funny different ways of looking at people's names. And it, and it really is funny, but I, I don't think we'd read it publicly without being politically incorrect very fast because we're sure to step on somebody's toes with it. In fact, maybe you've done that. You know, there's a, a good friend of mine who went to a baby shower. It was with a colleague from work who was having their first baby. And they played the game where, you know, what would be the funniest names to name this baby? And she just says this name out loud. And, and she and about two or three other people hoot and holler, just thinking it's so funny. And then they look around the room and go, nobody else is laughing. And then they discovered it was the grandfather to be's name that they were hooting and hollering about. So you kind of, you know. But as the story of the Bible unfolds, each time God wants to reveal something more about himself, he gives himself a name, he describes himself, he, he, he describes his actions towards us, and, and he describes himself in a way that gives us the trust that we can trust in his word and trust in his action to be this way to us. And it's pretty amazing because the Bible has over, well over a hundred names that God names himself with to describe different aspects about him to us. In the next ten weeks, we're gonna, we're gonna ponder ten of these names. We're gonna take a name each week. 
And I want this summer to be about this habit of refreshing. This, just, just like when we ponder these names, just like you would sit by that, by the ocean shore and the warm beach and see the waves crashing at sunset and you, at sunset and you would, you would just feel yourself drink in the refreshing and, 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 and just be replenished and satisfied better. Or maybe you're, a, maybe you're a stream person or a mountain person or, or, or maybe you're just an urban person. You like to see the lights, whatever it is. But I want you to take this summer as we look at this and just, just think about who God is. We've talked over the last year about how the most important thing that we think every day is how we think about God. It affects every area of our life. So I want this summer to be just a summer of refreshing, of really learning to, to experience what Jesus says to the Samaritan woman. Jeremy preached on this a few weeks ago in John 4, where Jesus is talking to this woman at the well and, and telling her about her life and, and inviting her to, to experience him. And he says this, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, talking about the well standing in front of them. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is basically saying, if you know me, if you see me for who I am, if you understand really my name, who I am, the essence of who I am, it'll satisfy the deepest longings and it'll satisfy every thirst your life has. Today we look at one name of God that's only found once in the Bible. And it's found in a really interesting place. It's found towards the end of the Old Testament. In fact, it's the, it's the last name God ascribes to himself in the Old Testament. It's found in the very last three words of the book of Ezekiel. And it simply is this. It's a, it's a name called Jehovah Shammah, and it simply means, I am always there for you. I'm there. God is always there. Now, some people look at this and they say, well, the context of it is talking about God being there in Jerusalem, and so it's not really a name of God. Well, most theologians throughout history have taken this as a name of God because if you understand the Jewish culture, when you read this passage, you understand that the Jews thought about Jerusalem as the place God was and who he was. And, and when you tie this as the last, the last name of God in the Old Testament to the first name of God in the New Testament, Emmanuel, which means God with us, this has popularly and consistently been treated as one of the primary names that God reveals himself. In fact, many would say this is the pinnacle of God's naming and describing who he is in the Old Testament. So what does it mean, God is there? Why the big deal? What does that mean to us? This past week had some sweet moments in the Ottoman household. I have a fifth grader and an eighth grader, now a sixth grader and a ninth grader. So we had these little transition from elementary to middle school party celebration and transition from middle school to high school. And they do some really, I was really impressed. The schools here do some really neat things. So, for instance, we go to the fifth grade graduation. And uh, it kind of reminded me of the Northwest because this last week all the fifth graders made tie-dye shirts. So, you know, it just kind of makes me feel home with the hippie culture of the Northwest that we left behind a couple years ago. And they all walk into the McCoy Center, the Performing Arts Center, and all the parents are there. There's, they have like three or four sections of fifth graders. So it's just, you know, the 130 from my son's section walk in with their little paper graduation caps and tassels on. And, and the minute they walk in, it's just uncanny. The minute they walk in, they're all looking around and scanning the crowd. What are they looking for? They're looking for mom and dad, aren't they? 
And you see a little bit of a difference, you know, back in the kindergarten graduations or whatever you had back then. Or, you know, on a program, you'd see the kids up on the stage all waving at mom. Well, now fifth grade is just a little bit cooler. A few of them wave, usually girls. And then most of the people walk in and the guys walk in and, and they just, they're all looking, they're all looking. But when they see mom and dad, it's just the cute smile, you know, the... And then that's it, Right. So then we go, you know, the next day to my, my daughter's eighth grade celebration, which they have this really cool tradition, which uh, they, they have the band, the middle school band there and all the, a bunch of the teachers and, and all the parents standing around out front the door, outside the door, and they get to walk out to the buses first through the band playing and everybody clapping and celebrating. And, oh, the difference three, three years makes. It's just so different. Now, they still all come out and they're scanning the crowd, right? They're looking for them. But you've got the girls primarily who are, who are waving at mom and dad, but it's not really waving at them like they were in kindergarten. It's waving at them saying, come on over here. I'm going to grab the neck of my girlfriend. And I want you over here. Come on, give me a picture, you know. And then you got all the cool guys walking out and they're kind of going, I'm glad to see you, dad. But, but then you've got a few of the dads and a few of the moms who are just cheering like crazy and they're just getting so embarrassed. I saw one dad in particular right behind me just cheering like crazy because he knew his son was getting embarrassed and he was having fun with it. And the reality, though, is every single one of them eventually cracked a smile. You know they love it. You know they like being there. And, and it's, it's so interesting as a parent. You look, you look at that and you go, well... You know, what, what's the big deal? I mean, I, I was standing next to a guy that I, I had never met before, a real nice guy, and he was standing there with his, his phone waiting to take the video, and I, I turned over to him, talked to him a little bit, and, and I said, you know, this is kind of a metaphor for life and parenting, isn't it? You know, we come 30 minutes early, we stand there for 30 minutes for 30 seconds of celebration. And then we looked at each other, we smiled, we said, yeah, and it's worth it, isn't it? It's really worth it. You know, I can think back even in my own life. I can still picture where my parents were sitting in the, in the basketball game in high school where I played the best. I can still picture where they're sitting. What is it? What is it about just wanting to know that your parents are there? That someone who's there is there who loves you. We all long for it, don't we? In fact, we've all heard and maybe you've actually said one of the biggest pain points of your life is the fact that, 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 that maybe your parents weren't there, maybe your dad or mom wasn't there. What is it about just being there that becomes such a big, nourishing, satisfying, refreshing, or painful thing in our life? You know? God understands the powerful need we have for someone to be there. He understands this powerful need that we have that it doesn't matter if they're actually even interacting with us. They can be off 150 feet, 250 feet away in the, in, in the crowd or, or, a, or a football field away in the crowd, but just knowing they're there, knowing that somebody who loves us, somebody who we can go back to that night who's going to give us a hug no matter how we do or what happens is there sharing that moment of our life makes it so much richer. And God reveals himself as his final Old Testament description as the God who's always there. 
with us. Now think about this in the context. Ezekiel is a prophet in the Old Testament, and he's a prophet that they call the exilic prophet, meaning uh, he was taken by Babylon from Jerusalem. When Babylon overthrew Jerusalem, he was taken along with most of their leaders and most of their most of their princes and businessmen who were of influence and military people. They were taken into forced exile in Babylon, basically, essentially, as slaves because they were forbidden to go back. At the time of this statement that, is, that, that, I, that God makes through Ezekiel to us, it's been 25 years that they've been gone from Jerusalem. And, and Jerusalem stood when they left, but Jerusalem tried to rebel again later. And so 14 years before this time, Jerusalem was sacked and totally torn apart. The temple was, the temple was in, in, in shambles, just totally taken down, stone by stone and thrown all over the place. The wall is gone. The palace is gone. Houses are gone. And even more people were taken. Only the poorest of the poor were left in Jerusalem at that time. And this vision that, that is actually eight chapters long that concludes with God naming himself this, is, it's often called an apocalyptic vision, which basically means in the Bible that it's, it's talking more about the end times, about heaven. But, but it speaks to us deeply today as it spoke deeply to them then. How is God there? What happens in this vision that leads God to summarizing himself as the God who's there. In fact, it's the summary for the whole book of Ezekiel, that God is there. This vision spanning eight chapters. We'll take the next 20 minutes to read it, and then we'll dissect it for the next 40 hours. How's that sound? But I guarantee if we read this verse, that you'd be asleep in 10 minutes. I absolutely guarantee that if we read this thing, you would be asleep in 10 minutes. And have you ever been around somebody where you asked them a question or you complimented them and an hour later they're still talking? Maybe it's, maybe it's like this. Maybe you are a person who you're not good with your hands. You, you don't build things. You don't paint things. And as far as you're concerned, you never want to become good at that stuff, right? So let's, let's just imagine you walk into a house with someone who is this wonderful craftsman. And they've built this amazing house and this amazing remodel. And you ask them a question and they just start going on and on about it. They just say, oh man, we did this and, and I had to use this kind of cut here and this kind of cut here and this kind of dowel here. And, and, and they go into all great. And I ran into this problem and then I had to solve it this way. And they just keep going on and on and on. And, and then, and then they, they talk about that for a while and then, and then they have to say, oh, and man, permits with the government, they were so difficult. They had to do this and I had to talk here and we had to, we had to redraw the plan ten times and submit it and then, and then to get the people to come and approve the, the work and to get the inspections done was just amazingly difficult and, and then it still doesn't stop. Then they decide to tell you about all the injuries they had and the infections they got from the splinters and how they, how they healed them, and, and it still doesn't stop. Then they go on and tell you, you know, I discovered that wearing these types of clothes really worked best through this project, and th- wearing this type of clothes really didn't work. And, and then they tell you, you think they're done, and this is 45 minutes in, and, and then they tell you, oh, and it was so difficult to move everything out, and we had to store it here, and that didn't work, so then we had to call Joe, and he had to take some and store it there, and then we had to have, and it still didn't work, so we had to store it there, and then moving back in, and it, I mean, so an hour later, 
they're still talking and you're going, wow, do I want to ask them another question or not? And that's really kind of like this vision from God is. It goes into this mind-numbing detail about how Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt and the width of this and the width of that and the length of that. And, and when we get this done, you, you know, you're going to have this celebration and they're going to dress like this and they're going to come and you're going to do this. And, and then when this gets done, we're going to make sure that the prince has this land and that's going to be designated. And then we're going to have this land set aside over here where you can have your, your farms and your, your supply stuff. And, and then this is for the priests and nobody can do this. And this is how the priests live in there. And then, and then they go into the governance and they say how the prince is going to function in a way that, in a way that won't have the same abuses they experienced before and and then and then they start saying well and when you come back to the land this is how we're going to divide it up you know the the tribe this tribe will be here and this tribe will be here and this tribe will be here and then when you get there this is how you're going to actually get your land there'll be land for everybody and we're going to and this is what the vision is it's mind-numbing in detail but imagine yourself being forcibly removed from your home in ohio and taken to Iraq, never to really be able to return, knowing that you're essentially slaves, potentially for the rest of your life. And each year comes along and you you remember the holidays and the traditions and the celebrations and the festivities and the the great worship experiences you went to be a part of. and, And you can't do that. And not only can you not do that, but, but, but you, don't even, you, can't, you can't even do it with your family and friends because some of them were left back in Jerusalem alive. Some of them were killed in the siege and some of them were killed on the way to Babylon. And even when you got to Babylon, Iraq, nobody, you don't even know where they're at. So you don't even know whether they're still alive today or not, even if they were when you left. And then you may have been there 25 years or maybe you were only one of the people who came 14 years ago to this to this exile, but, but you know that Jerusalem was sacked and your home is no longer there and it's just rubble and, and the place you went for entertainment and fun, the, maybe the mall you went to or the theater you went to or the church you went to or the school you went to, or the church, they're, all, they're all just pieces of rubble being inhabited by wild animals. And then God comes to you and he says, I'm going to restore you to your home. I'm going to restore you to your land. And you can picture it because you remember it. And even if you don't remember it, you've heard the people who are older than you who do remember it telling you in in detail about how beautiful it was and how much you long for it for years. And you have a God who comes to you and lays out the blueprints and, and says, what do you want? How do you want this to look like? And can you imagine how many of you have ever built your own home? Can you imagine building your own home on your dream piece of property with an unlimited budget? And that's the kind of detail. How much fun you would have with the plans. How much fun you would have planning, you know, here's going to be where the bathrooms and bedrooms are so that when I have guests they can be here. And how much fun it would be to plan the backyard even down to, the, even down to where every electrical outlet was going to be so you could have your Christmas lights and your summer parties just as you wanted to have them. Can you imagine how much fun and how hope-giving that would be? You see, God being there for us is found in the details. 
He's there for us in the details. When we experience a smile over our kids or when we don't know what to do with them, he's there. When he, he, cares about, he cares about your cares and your joys and your hopes about even just having a home that's peaceful and joyful and decorated the way you enjoy. He, he's there when your business is going well. He's there when your business isn't going well. He's there when you're frustrated over the lawnmower not working and he's there when you're frustrated over the fact that you have such a hard time letting go of this sin that causes so much problems in your life or your marriage. He's there. God being there, cheering for us in the details, caring about the things that we think he might not even care about, hoping for the best for us, even when we don't see him, working behind the scenes like we as parents sometimes work behind the scenes for our kids to give them a great experience. And God being there after the event is over for us to come home to regardless of the outcome, to welcome us, to hug us, to talk with us, and just to hang out with us. You know, the fact that this vision is so long speaks to one other, one other thing that I think is powerful about the truth about God being there as well. And it kind of ties back into the submarine thing. You know, when you think about this scared sailor on the inside of the submarine tapping on Morris code, is there any hope? Did that tapping actually help in the rescue? Did it actually do anything to get them rescued sooner or better or quicker? Or did it do anything? You know, in one sense, the obvious answer is no. But God knows that for us, we need to know he's there. And so he spends times like these eight chapters of a vision or the 48 chapters of this book illustrating to us in such detail, communicating to us in such detail that he is there because hope that he's there, hope that he's working, hope that there's a plan makes all the difference in the world when we realize that he's there. As we take this journey of reflection and refreshing this summer, looking at the names of God, I want us to allow him to satisfy our thirsts, our hungers, our yearnings, the areas where we're dry. And part of that reminds me of this quote from Prince Caspian of the C.S. Lewis Narnia series. If you're familiar with it, Lucy is one of the characters in there, and she's been gone from Narnia for a year. And and the first time she sees Aslan, Aslan is the the great lion who's a symbol of Jesus in in the writing. She gazes up into his large, wise face and she says, Aslan, you're bigger. And he says, that's because you're older, little one. And her response to that is, not because you are? And he says, no, I'm not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. You know, as children grow, we find adults smaller. But as our faith grows, we discover God who's bigger. And discovering God, a God who is bigger, starts with realizing that he is always there for us. I want to invite you as we do an application to this, an application I hope you'll continue to do on a regular basis for yourself. 
I'm going to ask you to engage your imagination with me in just a moment. You know, sometimes we have uh, let go of the imagination in church, even though it's interesting because uh, um, God models the use of the imagination in meditation for us all throughout the Bible. And all of Christian history models the use of the imagination especially in regard to this. I mean, after all, we just looked at the Bible, and the Bible uses an eight-chapter vision to give us a, a picture that we can imagine in our minds of how much God wants to be there and is there for us. So I'm going to ask you in a moment to just visualize a safe place and to visualize Jesus with you there. But, but I want to first look at this because David models this whole exercise that I'm going to ask you to do right now for us in, in one of the greatest pieces of literature, one of the most quoted pieces of literature in all of history, in Psalm 23. He starts out that by saying, The Lord is my shepherd. You see, David's safe place when he imagined a place that he could go that was safe, that was peaceful, that was replenishing, the kind of place where you're sitting beside wherever it is, a a mountain or a stream or or a waterfall or or an ocean, and and you you just soak in the replenishment. For him, it was this pasture, the place he grew up as a child, feeling safe, leading the sheep. And it's interesting because he's, he's likely writing this the day or the morning before a really scary battle. So he says, the Lord is my shepherd. He says, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Can you see him picturing the place that's safe with him and God? He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are there with me, he says. He uses his imagination to picture this place and he pictures God there with him. I want to invite you to just close your eyes and allow me to to open up with prayer and, and then lead you in a meditation using your imagination. Lord, I ask that as we take this moment to use our imaginations that you've given us, that you would come and meet us there. You'd come and show us even more deeply how much you're there for us. And now I want you to just imagine, visualize a place that's just safe, replenishing, peaceful to you. Maybe it's a real place. Maybe you actually had a place growing up or, or maybe you have a place now. Maybe it's a real place or, or maybe it's a place that you're going to make up that just depicts safety and peace to you and replenishment. Do you have a place? Now I want you to just examine it. Look around. Feel what it feels like. Maybe you can even hear the sounds. Look at the things of the place. Now I want you to invite Jesus to come there, to show himself, show, him how, show you how he's there. And picture him. Can you picture him? Can you see him? Where is he? 
What's he doing? And just sit with that. Just enjoy him being there. Lord, I'm so grateful that you are the God who's always there. In the ups and the downs, in the difficult times, in the good times, in the times when we are trying to push you away, and the times when we're trying to draw close. Lord, that you're there in even the littlest details of our life. That you're interested in our lives. That there's no place of who we are, what we think about, that you're not interested in being a part of. Thank you, Lord, for being there. Lord, for those here who may have had parents that weren't there for them and they've experienced pain from that, Lord, I pray that you would be there for them. That even as they visualize and imagine you being there, that you would bring a deep sense of healing to them. Lord, become big to us this summer. Help us to grow older. Help us to see you bigger and bigger and bigger. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to encourage you to continue to go to that place you went to in your mind and invite Jesus there. You know, throughout the day, you're hitting a stress point. Close your eyes, go there, and say, Jesus, thank you for being here. Allow him to speak to you. Allow him to just be with you in a tangible way in your imagination. It's not just imagination. God created us with the ability to do that in our mind as a way of connecting with the very real presence of God who's with us. How else do we get to sometimes see somebody who's invisible except for God to show himself to us, even in ways like that. God bless. If you're here and would like some prayer, we'd love to pray for you. But let's have a great, refreshing summer. Have a great day.